All right. So we are continuing on today in our study. This is uh, lesson number six um, in our study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And we are calling this overall study where it all began or where it all begins. I guess you'd put it in the present tense. Um, but it's really just a, a, a study of the beginning of the beginning. And Genesis chapters 1 through 11 it really sets the stage for God's redemptive plan and his revelation of himself as it carries on through scripture and as we understand um, our spiritual heritage as well. But Genesis chapters 1 through 11 really, uh, really come into play to help us understand um, what happened before Abraham shows up on the scene. That's what we're, that's what we're looking at. And we're obviously focusing in on uh, the Genesis 1 creation narrative. We've been kind of settled in there for a while uh, since the beginning of our study. We're going to continue on today and looking at uh, more of the creation days as they unfold in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I do want to just remind you guys of some of the distinctions of our study, some of the things that distinguish how we approach a study like this. Um, we, are, we are looking at this from the perspective of a biblical creator-centered worldview rather than a secular humanistic worldview. So we don't come at this uh, thinking that we stand in some position of intellectual autonomy and can just look at scripture and look at the created order and ascertain in our own wisdom uh, what, what must have happened um, or how things must have been made or must have evolved, if you will go that direction. Uh, we assume a biblical worldview. We assume a creator-centered worldview, um, and that's where we start. We also, um, we also take the position you're looking at a supernatural and a special creation rather than a naturalistic or random evolutionary process. So when you figure in an eternal God who is all-powerful and above time and space, who then begins to create, um, it certainly does remove a lot of obstacles that the naturalist would bring to this type of, of discussion or exploration. Because the naturalist, the person who's saying that I need to understand how things came into be by looking at everything that has come into be, uh, they're basically removing from the equation the most fundamental principle, and that is that everything that came into being came into being because the supreme being, God himself, made it so. So if you take the supernatural element out of this, this narrative or out of this look at origins, then you're going to come to all kinds of erroneous conclusions. Um, we're, we, we believe in a special creation as well in that God designed things and had a special purpose in creating what he created and making what he made and forming what he formed and it, and it set in motion the grand purpose of God and ultimately the purpose of God being to uh, bring glory to his name and to create a people for himself and for his own possession that would bring glory to his name that the, the scriptures themselves point to the glory of God as he's revealed and and. The heavens cry out in worship to him, and those who are called his own worship him. And so it's about God and his, his power and his grace and all of his character that makes him worthy of worship and praise. We looked at the fact that we're talking about a creation that was by fiat or by command. So God speaks and it comes into being. It's also creation that's called ex nihilo or out of nothing. 
So we're talking about God, all-powerful, creating by his word and by his will, everything out of nothing. And we even looked at, we even broke this down last week. We talked about this and some of its specific components that, uh, in, that you see in this Genesis chapter 1 narrative as it plays out, this, these repeating components with each creation day. Um, there are some um, variations that we'll even see one today, but, but generally the flow of it goes like this. God speaks, creation happens, God declares his verdict on what he has made, and then that day's work of creation concludes with evening and morning on that numbered day. So it's a very, very specific cycle, and really it constrains the creation work into specific, understandable clear periods of time, namely the, the, the progress of this typical uh, 24-hour day. This leads to the next distinction that we've talked about, and that is that, that we are looking at this, uh, particularly Genesis chapter 1, as a natural and literal reading and interpretation. We, we are not looking at it as uh, something that we have to read into the text so that we can accommodate modern secular scientists. Um, and, and that is something that, has, uh, that, that still today plagues much of uh, evangelical uh, thinking around origins. There's a lot of accommodation that takes place. And so there are things like gap theory. We talked about gap theory a while ago where you've got this idea that that between Genesis chapter 1, where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, uh, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, versus Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that there's a gap of time there. And that, that we have to read into the text that there's this long gap of time so that we can accommodate to this idea that the earth is much older than it actually is. Or uh, day-age theory, which we didn't really talk about before. Day-age theory is basically this idea where you have to read into the text uh, a different understanding of the term for day. So rather than day in the text meaning a literal 24-hour period, like we would understand day, and like if you read the text in just its natural sense, you would think we're talking about a day, especially when you say there was evening and there was morning the first day, there was evening, there was morning the second day, there was evening, there was morning the third day, and so forth. The natural reading of that and a naturally understandable interpretation of that text would be a literal 24-hour period of time like we understand a day. Yes? I just have a question. The gap period, is that, is that like between when it says earth was about form and void and then God created the form and all that? That's right. There's like, two, there's like two stages of creation, basically. And the, I mean, in the gap theory would read into the text that, that it was in between that period of time where um, Satan and a third of the angels fell, and then there was a judgment that took place as a result of that, and then God re-sort of constituted and reformed the earth and, and moved forward with the six-day creation that you read there. Um, but, it, but it basically allows for whatever amount of time you feel like you need to have to be able to accommodate a long period of time to to justify older thinking. Um, the day-age theory would attribute to the term day longer period of time than a 24-hour day. So it would say, t- say that the Hebrew word yom uh, for day can also mean an age or an epoch, some long period of time, something longer than a 24-hour period of time. 
And it will, it, you know, the, 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 the theory, those that, that uh, embrace this theory would, would point to a few other places in Scripture where it does mean an age or an epoch of time. It's not referring specifically to a 24-hour period of time. But you don't find in those accounts the sighting of evening and morning the first day as, as in conjunction with the term yom or day in Hebrew. It's just not there. When you have that specific of a, of a nomenclature or, or wording around yom, the Hebrew word for day, it literally is referring to a normal day, a normal 24-hour period of time. Um, the other argument that they would make would be like from uh, Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, and 2 Peter 3, verse 8, that makes this reference that to, to God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And, and they would point to that to say, see, a day can mean something much different than a 24-hour period of time. Scripture itself even says that it can mean a thousand years, for example. Uh, unfortunately, that kind of thinking or that kind of interpretation really misses the point of those passages. The point of those passages is really just pointing out the fact that, that God is above time, that he, he, he doesn't, he's not forced into measuring time the way we measure time. He, he is eternal in nature. We talked about the eternality of God um, early on in our, our discussions. And those, those references in Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, where it talks about a day being like a thousand years to God. Um, it's, just, it's just talking about how that God, God is present tense, like he revealed himself and named himself to Moses when Moses was called to go and, and, and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he asked, who should I say sent me? And God says, I, tell him I am sent you. Like he's present tense. There's a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. God is above time. God is above space. He's eternal. That's the point of those passages. It's not to, to, to make a, an argument for some different interpretation anytime you come across the term, the word yom in the Old Testament. So, again, um, you know, not, not very strong argument there for, for the day-age theory. One other um, uh, element that they would point to, or actually, um, yeah, one other element that they would point to is that the, uh, the seventh day uh, where God rested, it says that that day never ended. So there's a, there's a sense in which you look at the text where it, at the end of the creation narrative, it does not say that there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. That, that particular phrase is not there. And so they would point to that and they would say that, that the, se- the seventh day is still ongoing. The seventh day of Sabbath rest in creation is still ongoing. And so therefore you can point to something other than a 24-hour period, even in the creation narrative as it, as it plays out. But it does say that God rested. It is a definitive statement there that God is not resting ongoingly in this ongoing Sabbath day that's longer than 24 hours. So it's really the point of all this is not to spend a lot of time trying to evaluate and analyze the components of these theories like day-age theory or like uh, gap theory. Any, any of these ideas that, that really, they force you to read into the text something that is not naturally there. It's just not there. And so what we're saying is, is that we're going to approach the text, and we're just going to take it at face value. Okay? And we're going to have a supernatural, there is a God, we are not him, presupposition as we approach the text, and as we look at these, these different days of creation. There's one other... Um, 
One other way that, that you will find people who will read something into the text that's not there, uh, something called the framework hypothesis. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but it's another uh, similar kind of idea in the sense that um, it's basically taking uh, Genesis chapter 1 and trying to fit it into a sort of a poetic framework, literary framework, and um, it, breaks, you know, it breaks things down in the, in the creation narrative into these, these poetic categories of poetic devices. But it's all, the, the purpose of it all, without going into a lot of detail, um, is, to, is to basically make the text mean something other than what it says. So, in other words, if you take the framework hypothesis and, and you basically remove a literal interpretation from Genesis chapter 1, then you can accommodate... Genesis chapter 1 to any kind of scientific theory about origins. Um, interestingly enough, the leading promoter of the framework hypothesis, a, a, a scholar by the name of Meredith Klein, um, he was very explicit in, in articulating the, the, the purpose in trying to promote this framework hypothesis. This is a, a, a otherwise conservative evangelical biblical scholar who says this, to rebut the literalist interpretation of the Genesis creation week propounded by the young earth theorists is a central concern of this article. He was writing an article on the framework hypothesis. He says, the conclusion is that as far as the time frame is concerned with respect to both the duration and sequence of events, the scientist is left free of biblical constraints in hypothesizing about cosmic origins. So you have a theologian who's trying to liberate the scientist from any biblical constraints in their understanding of the origins. So it's, it's really trying to, to separate Genesis chapter 1 and all of its literal, sort of very easy, straightforward to understand language from anything that would be literally understood and then freeing, freeing the scientist up to just say millions, billions of years is okay you know, no need to worry about this, this literal 24-hour day, six-day creation nonsense. And that's the purpose of this framework hypothesis. My point in, in putting all that before you is this. As I've said before, when you come to the text of Genesis chapter 1, um, every, every effort to, to render a different understanding of Genesis chapter 1 other than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and on day one, he did this, and on day two, he did that. And in order to render a different understanding of it, you have to bring to the text things that are not there. You have to adopt presuppositions about the text that you don't find flowing out of the text itself. And that's a, that's a, there's a term for that called eisegesis. It's rather than exegesis, taking what the text says and trying to understand what it means, it's having an idea of what the text should mean, and so you bring things and press it into the text to make it mean what you think it should mean, okay? That's not what we do here, <laughs> okay? Um, so just understand that that's, that's, uh, that's very common um, in, in evangelical circles, very common, but, the, but ultimately it's reading into the text as opposed to letting the text of Scripture just speak for itself, and then you got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it somehow, okay? Um, so let's just go to the text, okay? Let's just get there. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 27. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which, water, with, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we're going to stop there and, and kind of start walking through the creation days again. Now, as I mentioned last week, the general structure here that you see is there's a, the focus of God's creation is, is noted. We talked about this last week in verse 2, where God created the heavens and the earth, so he created all time, space, and matter, but then in verse 2, he immediately turns his focus to the earth. He starts talking about how the earth was formless and void. It was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So his focus immediately goes to earth. And we drew kind of a, a, a contrast in our minds to how significant that kind of focus is when you think about the vastness of the universe that God had made. Okay, And we talked about various galaxies. We talked about the distance of the Milky Way galaxy and Earth's relative size to the sun and those kinds of astronomical terms to kind of give us a sense that this turn of focus is no small turn when you put it in the context of the vastness of the universe and what God had, had made. 
But the next thing we see happening uh, is, is the forming of, of the universe, the forming of the world. And then the last part of creation, you see God starting to fill the earth. Okay, So we're going to talk today and try to get through the creation days one through three in kind of a flyby, fairly rapid pace. Um, uh, and talk about the, the God's forming of the earth. He's, he is creating a, a habitation place. He's creating a, a temple, if you will. He's creating a, a place for a theater in which his purposes, his redemptive plan for, for the, the, his, his plan to reveal his grace through Jesus Christ. I mean, all that is, is being formed so that there can be uh, an, a habitation uh, for that to unfold. And so we see this beginning... Uh, on creation day one, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And it says, starting in verse 3, that God said, let there be light. We talked about this quite a bit last week. How there, there, This is an amazing thing that happens here when God says, let there be light. Um, we talked about the amazing and mysterious properties of light. This is something that we just take for granted. I read from you uh, from a book all these different properties of light. Even even today, I mean, I even read some more this week. How you know there's been there's been theories about actually what is light. I mean, you know, the question asking the question like what what really is light? Because if you think about it, uh, we see we see what light reflects, right? I mean, we we don't you don't see really light. And so we talked about how um, it's part. It's part particle, it's part wave, and scientists and physicists still don't fully understand how to articulate what light is. And yet God just said, let it be so. And so this thing called light that we just operate in, in our existence, is something that is of amazing and immense complexity and, and, and really power when you think about it. And we talked a little bit about that last time. We also talked about how, uh, you know, in the, in the flow of the creation narrative, this light is a created light, but it is a light that is created that is separate from the sun. That some people stumble over this and go, well, how could there have been light if, if there wasn't a sun yet? That doesn't happen until creation day four. And I just simply made the point that, um, it, you know, we really shouldn't stumble over that as much as just the fact that God just said something and it came into being. I mean, you're talking about creation ex nihilo out of nothing. That's a more amazing thought, whether it's light or whether it's anything else, that the fact that God created something out of nothing is the amazing thing that if anybody's going to stumble, you might want to try starting to stumble over that a little bit. But the fact is, is that if God has the power to create something out of nothing, then certainly he has the power to create light that is not necessarily attached to this thing called the sun that he hasn't made yet. In other words, the thinking that, that begins to pose those kinds of questions is the kind of thinking that says, okay, fine, God created the heavens and the earth, whatever, but everything that I see now and everything that I know from my, my study of science has to fit you know, everything I read in Scripture has to fit into what we already know. And again, I take us back to our presupposition. No, we're talking about supernatural creation. We're not talking about naturalistic conclusions drawn from our observations of the known universe and then trying to force God and his creation story into that framework. But the fact of the matter is, is that God created light. He separated light from darkness. And he, he create, this is a created form of light that is separate from the light of the sun. 
And we, re- we talked about, uh, someone in here mentioned uh, Revel- Revelation 22 that references, you know, in the, in the new heaven and new earth, there will no, be no need for a sun because the very light of God's presence will be all the light that's necessary in that time. So Scripture talks about how God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So God can make light is the point. And if you have problems with that because you need to have a sun, I don't know what to tell you. Then your God is too small. I mean, I, I mean, I want my God to be able to say, let there be light, and there's light, and it doesn't have to have a sun. It just doesn't have to. I mean, think about what, what we're saying. We're saying that God needs to make sure that if he's going to reveal his creation narrative, it has to make sense to me. R- remember the presuppositions that that flows out of when we start thinking like that. The other thing that we need to recognize here is that this is, this is very likely a polemic, an argument against ancient Near Eastern creation stories and what was common and is even common today in, in certain, certain senses um, of the, the worshiping and the deifying of the celestial bodies. I mean, think about sun worship, for example. I mean, the, 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 the celestial bodies were, were deified, were, 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 were uh, identified as deities with powers. Um, you know, you had all the, the pantheon of gods that were associated with the physical universe, the created universe, right? Um, and so, so this, is, this is Moses, under the inspiration of God, revealing that, no, the sun is not a deity, and, and light, the, the, the light that, that I create is, is a, a light that I create by speaking. And I'm going to show you in a little bit how I even form the sun. It is not a deity. It's not something to be worshipped. So this whole, this whole um, cycle of creation and the way that it's portrayed is also arguing against any, any form of, um, of man-made God thinking about how things came into be. And a lot of the ancient Near Eastern literature, particularly like the Enuma Elish, for example, um, where it talks about the creation narrative, it, it, ta- it speaks of these gods, you know, who there's these warring gods that, that, you know, for example, the expanse that we're going to look at as it's created on creation day two. I mean, it's created by, uh, because Marduk splits Tiamat in half, and, and, and like a shellfish, and the expanse becomes the two parts of this God Tim. I mean, it's just this, it's this crazy stuff that people would embrace as how things came into be. So this, this, is, a, this is also a, a sort of a polemic, an argument against these mythical stories about how, how the world came to be. And, and this creation of light is, is probably a part of that, that argument as well. Um, so next, let's get to creation day two. So God said, uh, let there be light. There was light. He separated light from the darkness, said it was good. Now we get to creation day two in verse six. It says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. What do you think uh, is being referred to here when it's called the expanse? What is the expanse here? What is the firmament? Uh, 
Okay, so you're talking about sort of a, um, a antediluvian, they would call it, um, atmosphere, pre-flood kind of atmosphere. So there's, th that's possible um, that, that that's kind of what we're talking about. We are, I think we are talking about the creation of habitable atmosphere, okay? This, this separation. So apparently the earth was, everything was kind of smashed together, if you want to consider it that. And again, our ability, our, our efforts to describe what was going on here are going to fall short. I mean, we, we don't know. Like, I don't know what it means that the earth was formless and void. I, I don't know specific, like, I can't draw, I can't go to that whiteboard and draw you a picture of what that looked like. I, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't tell us. In a similar way, what we know here is that there, it's called heaven. So the idea here is that everything that you see when you look up is the expanse. And, and we know that, we're, that God is forming an environment in which, as you look at the rest of the creation narrative, he is, he is preparing a place for there to be a habitation of life. So it would stand to reason that this is God creating something that would be akin to our atmosphere. Okay? Now this is, again, it is important that we, we mention that this is a pre-flood environment, and so it very well could have been a very distinct and different kind of atmosphere. And there are some, and we can, we can look at this, uh, we'll probably look at this some when we get to um, the, the account of the flood. But there are those that, would, that have uh, hypothesized that, that this was a, an environment that was um, um, sort of protected, in a sense, from the, the heat and the rays of the sun, and that contributed to the longer lifespan. I mean, there's all kinds of theories that go around that, but they, you know, the scripture doesn't confirm that, so it's still somewhat theoretical, even even though it could be possible that what's happening here. But we clearly know that there is water everywhere, right? I mean, before, before it says the earth is formless and void and the spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep and there's just water everywhere. I mean, there is no dry land visible yet because we're going to see that uh, in just a moment. But what God does first is he separates or he creates, he creates heavens or space between the waters, the existing waters that are covering dry ground at this point. He creates this expanse. Um, and, and when you think about, uh, when you start looking at the nature of our atmosphere and all that, all that is required, all the, the delicate balance of things that are required for life to be sustained in our atmosphere, it's quite amazing as well. You start looking at these things in their, in their detail and it's amazing how this was just formed into existence on creation day two. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was morning, and there was evening the second day. Now, here's an interesting point to make is that um, in, it, when he creates this expanse, this, this atmosphere, if you will, um, he does not declare a verdict on it. He does not say it was good. Um, don't know for sure why, but it could be that, that there's, more to, there's more forming to make before, it is, before his verdict is rendered for it to be an, an inhabitable place. And we'll see that uh, play out as the text moves forward. I don't know why that's the case, but it is something interesting to note that, that he has not declared a verdict yet on this expanse that he's made. In other words, it's like he's not, he's not done even though that day of creation comes to an end. Um, then we go on to creation day three. It says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, 
and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. There's his verdict right there. Okay, God saw that it was good. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. We, we read over this, and again, it, it's very difficult for us to imagine this, how, I mean, like in some kind of physical imagery kind of way, but imagine this massive tectonic shifting that had to have been taking place. In other words, to, to, to start to try and appreciate and appropriately respond to with a, a degree of awe and wonder at the power of God, when it says that, that he says, let dry land appear. Now, I want you to just think about anything that we experience at this day and time that is, that is some form of earth moving. And think of what the corresponding effects of that are. Remember the tsunami that hit, uh, is it Southeast Asia? Where did it hit? Um, that massive tsunami, that, huh? Taiwan? Yeah. Um, I recently, for some reason, I can't remember what, you know how you, you start, you click on something and then you click on something else and you click on something else and all of a sudden you find yourself like looking at some video about, I mean, uh, the tsunami that hit, you know, several years ago. I, that happened to me one day recently where I, it was probably a news story that was linked. I don't know what happened, but I saw my, I found myself watching YouTube videos of you know, people that were like there, you know, you've seen those, of the tsunami. So just, just imagine the, the force and the power where you just see this, we just kind of pass over it because it's just a few little words in a sentence, but he says, let dry land appear. So we're talking about an, a massive display of creative power here that's very difficult for us to come close to imagining. But he said it, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, and he said that it was good. So this is a pre-flood geology, a pre-flood earth, a pre-flood environment. Um, and again, we don't have to look far. We don't have to think too deeply about the effects of water, uh, an abundance of water, and what that can do to anything. I mean, I remember... Um, uh, recently, I guess it might have been, was it last winter or winter before last, where there was a lot of frozen pipe damage people were experiencing. We had lots of friends with, with flooded basements. I mean, we experience the impact of excess water where it's not supposed to be and, and, and the damage that it can do to just our you know, carpet and furniture. So imagine what we're talking about here when we're talking about dry ground appearing out of the deep and out of the water and God forming or collecting or gathering the waters into seas. Again, I don't know what this looked like, and that's the point, right? If you and I can intellectually plumb the depths of God's creative work and say, I got it, let me draw you a picture, to me, that's a problem. That's a problem because you've got a God who basically, you know, was able to pull something off that, you know, you could have figured out if you had enough time. So I'm okay with just looking at this and just standing back and standing in awe of the sheer power of what this demonstrates or what this reveals. But no doubt, uh, there was massive tectonic shifts in the formation of land as it separated from the waters. And, and it, by the way, you know, two-thirds of the Earth's surface is covered in water. So this, this kind of fits a, a, a geology that we, that we know today. Um, 
And then in verse uh, 11, he's not done yet on this, this creation day three. He says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is, uh, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So that we have on creation day three, well, first of all, you have on creation day two an atmosphere that, that provides the, the environment in which the, the succeeding elements of creation can survive. So you have this creation of the atmosphere. Then you have the, the, the production, if you will, of dry land and the separation of the waters into seas. And then you have the earth bringing forth by God's creative will, vegetation, sprouting all kinds of vegetation. Now, there's some key things that we need to, to recognize here. First thing we need to see um, is that, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that um, scientists want to tell us is that the earth is old, very, very old, like 4.5 billion-ish years, give or take, you know, half a billion. I don't know. I mean, pick your number. I mean, it's old. It's much older than than what Genesis, you know, a, a literal reading and understanding of Genesis would yield up, which it would yield up if you just kind of track the genealogies that are in Genesis and, and track it forward. It would yield up a, an age of somewhere in the six-ish, thousand-ish range, years, okay? That's a, that's a huge difference, like 6,000 and 4.5 billion age of the earth. That's a big, big difference. Um, there's lots of things that, that are not taken into account in that assumption of an old earth, um, in other words, if you start with the presupposition that everything evolved, there was like the Big Bang and then there was, you know, everything that we see today had to evolve over time, you're going to need a lot of time, right? And something that struck me today, and I, again, this is how simple-minded I am, but uh, has anybody worked a shift to set this place up for Sunday mornings? Have you worked a shift? Now, you think about that for a second. Now think about all the moving parts and pieces of chairs and unloading carts and crates and toy boxes for the children's classrooms and setting up tables and setting up all this pipe and drape and all the sound system and everything. Just think about that evolving over time. I mean, just the idea, the absurd notion that something that is organized like that could, if just, if just enough time and just the, the, the evolving of enough raw materials to make it so, it would be so. It, it just, it, just it, it cries out absurdity when you just think about it on that basis. I was thinking about that this morning. Like, I don't, I don't know how much time it would take for all this to evolve into place, but I don't think we would be able to start church on time. <laughs> I, I think we would be late. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the age of the earth is, is kind of the big, one of the big problems here. But one component of that, in addition to, you know, a post-flood geology that you would have to consider and what the flood would have done to, to sedimentary rock and to the movement of massive parts of the earth and that kind of thing, if you had a universal flood, we'll talk about that another time, is that it, it appears that God created a mature earth. And you see that kind of revealed here in this creation day, because it says that uh, the earth to, was to sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. So I don't know about you, but a tree that bears fruit doesn't start 
with fruit on it, right? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't begin that way. So there's this, there's this picture of maturity that is built into God's creative work, okay? And, and so, um, so we have to assume, and if you think about it, when you get down to the creation of Adam and Eve, there's, there's nothing there that would indicate that God created Adam and Eve as infants, right? That they, they started off as newborns and then they grew, they, they're grown. So that, that idea, that concept of God's creation being a flourishing in, in, in the context of time, if you will, being a mature creation, accelerated to maturity in one day, is the image that we have here. Um, the other thing to note is that, is that in this vegetation um, uh, component, you see these, these seed-bearing, um, the seed-bearing vegetation. In other words, that the replication process is contained within the fruit itself. And this idea, this, this uh, concept of seed is very important in, redemp- in the redemptive story that's going to be told as well about Abraham and his seed and being the father of many nations and, and the seed of the woman and at part of the curse. You're going to see this, this idea, this theme of, of seed um, playing forward. But, but it's this idea that you have within the, the trees themselves, the created reproductive process is built into it. And then you'll notice, too, this repeated refrain in this particular uh, creation day that, that continues on as uh, the creation work continues into other areas of, of God creating things according to its kind, each according to its kind. So when you think about that compared to a more evolutionary model, you see that if you come to the text of Scripture, you cannot you cannot see anything that would allow you to accommodate to an evolutionary model. It's just not there. You have to take these kinds of ideas that are clearly presented in Scripture, and you have to do something else with them. And so that begs the question for all of us who come to the text of Scripture. If we feel compelled and compressed to do that here, where is our limit? Where is our cutoff point? Where else do we get to go in Scripture and say, that doesn't fit my worldview. That doesn't fit within my framework of scientific understanding. That doesn't fit my particular preferences, whatever it might be. So I'm going to make it fit my take on things. And that, that to me, is, takes us back to the fundamental problem that we have coming to a study like this, and that is this. We are post-fall sons and daughters of Adam, and we have inclinations toward self-centeredness and sin. And we want things to fit our comfort level, and we want things to fit our worldview, and we don't want to just come to something like God creating the heavens and the earth by the will, by, the, by His own will, for His own purposes, by the word of His power. Um, we, we come to that, and we don't want to just bow before it in awe we want to say, okay, but that doesn't fit, and it needs to fit. But when you look at this particular section here about how God created fruit trees bearing fruit with their seed, each according to its kind, the vegetation, plants yielding seed, and on and on, each according to its kind, it, it presses the point that a natural reading of the, the creation account does not provide quarter for an evolutionary model. So if you were going to hold to an evolutionary model for the origins of the universe, 
then you're, you're going to have very significant problems with a, an interpretation of Genesis. And it's going to force you into a, a, having to answer the question, where else in Scripture do you get to go and do that? Where does that, that liberty that you've bought for yourself end? When do you decide or where do you decide that I probably shouldn't change that verse to mean something else? It's a real danger there for, for anyone who would walk down that path. So that, that kind of concludes or wraps up, and we're going to talk more about this and the implications of this as we go forward, but that kind of wraps up the, the forming process, if you will. Next, you're going to see more of the filling. You start to see the filling here with the vegetation, um, the forming in the first half of verse 3, and then we start the, the, the filling in verse the second half of, excuse me, the creation day 3, uh, the forming in the first half, and then the second half of creation day 3 with this vegetation, sprouting forth vegetation, you start to see the beginning of God filling the earth. Um, with habitation, all to his glory. Let's pray.